1: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate or bookmark our Amazon link. Any order made via this link will contribute a small percentage to the Be Here Now Network at no extra cost to you. For this latest installment in the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, we have acclaimed author and translator Mirabai Starr. She's well known for her work on bringing the works of famous Christian mystics to a contemporary audience. This talk we are featuring was recorded at Ram Dass' Spring Retreat on Maui. Throughout this podcast, Mirabai elaborates on the relationship of loss and longing for God. Her deep empathy and caring for people shines through and connects with everyone who is on the path of the mystic heart. To close, Mirabai answers some questions from the audience. Enjoy this talk with Mirby and stay tuned for more from the Be Here Now Network guest podcast.
2: So I think what we'll do this afternoon is I'll, I'll speak a little bit about the lives of some of the saints that, that I hang out with and then open it up for your questions and reflections. Sound good? Are you interested in knowing a little bit about the Spanish mystics? Okay. Good. And I'm especially um, interested today to explore the connection between loss and longing for God which i think the mystics exemplify so beautifully in their in their teachings that res- reciprocity between the heart that cries out with longing and the immediate answering response of love that sometimes feels exactly like longing the, the answer the remedy for For our brokenness lies in the brokenness, as so many of the mystics teach us. I did not design this. This is not the way I would have done it, but it does seem to be, in some cases, the way it goes, doesn't it? So um, San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross, and Santa Teresa de Avila, his guru, were both 16th century mystics in Spain. They both came from converso families, that is, Jewish families that were forced by the Inquisition to convert to Catholicism, or be exiled, or be executed. So there wasn't a lot of room for negotiation. Uh, you were you were either Catholic, or you were in danger for your life. So. And, you know, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and John of the Cross, by the way, had had um, Muslim roots as well. Teresa came from a Jewish family. John's father was probably Jewish, and his mother was probably a Moor, a Muslim. We don't know for sure, but this seems to be where the research is pointing, and it seems very likely. So, uh, they both were first-generation conversos in Spain, and very much, I feel, informed by 800 years of dialogue and collaboration between the three so-called Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Because until 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue with a bunch of Jews who had to get out of Spain, Jews, Christians, and Muslims had all been living together in Spain for eight centuries supposedly peacefully, although I kind of doubt that it was completely peaceful, but I'm sure it was somewhat peaceful. But not only did they coexist, but they collaborated on some of the greatest works of art and philosophy and architecture and mathematics and, what am I missing, probably music, but most importantly, to me anyway, mystical teachings. So that many of the teachings that come to us from, from the Middle Ages that are supposedly Jewish mystical teachings or Christian mystical teachings or, or Islamic teachings are actually kind of all three because rabbis sat with sheikhs, sat with, with uh, priests, and they explored together. And practitioners sat with practitioners and shared what they knew, shared midrash, you know, commentaries and reflections that came from their grappling with these perennial questions of the human spirit. So I don't think we can even untangle that web of wisdom that came out of the so-called golden age of Spain. So this is the the atmosphere in which both John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila arose. I always as a translator of Teresa of Avila, I hear her Jewishness all the time in her writing. It's this it's this voice of questioning everything. That wasn't, that's not a very Catholic voice. You know, you're you're expected to believe what you're told to believe, and that's that. But Teresa questions everything, not only dogma and doctrine, but her own experience. So Teresa of Avila was, was known for having all of these very dramatic visions, and hearing voices, and lapsing into raptures and ecstasies, I forgot to bring um, my little Teresa Vavila book, but she describes some of of her experiences of what she calls rapture, and it sounds exactly like the saints in India describing samadhi. Her body would go rigid, her breath would disappear, and she said if people checked her pulse, they couldn't even find a pulse. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar to any of you Hindu-esque people like me? When I read it, I was so excited. Samadhi. So... She had all of these dramatic experiences and they caught the attention of the Inquisition and because she was a, an abbess of a convent. Not only that, but she was a reformer, a very dangerous person who was advocating a return to the values, the contemplative values of the desert mothers and fathers, of silence and voluntary simplicity and solitude. So that she, she this was a double whammy of threatening issues with Teresita, of being a, a mystic who was experiencing these states of communion with the beloved and being a reformer who was questioning the very foundation of the church to which she claimed to be completely devoted, and I believe she was. So the Inquisition began to investigate her, and her response was basically, you don't need to have bothered, guys, because I am already subjecting all of my experiences to my own Inquisition, to my inner laser of inquiry, of self-inquiry. Because when she would return from these rapturous states or these experiences of seeing Christ, she would say, okay self. We we need to see what's going on here. Are you going crazy? Are you being tricked by the devil? Or are you being with God? And then she would say, so God, am I going crazy? Is the devil trying to trick me? Or is it you? And if it's you, you're going to have to prove it to me. She wasn't afraid of the Inquisition. Well, she probably was, but she never writes about that anywhere. She was afraid of her own delusion. I am too, aren't you? I'm afraid of my own delusion. I want to stay clear. I want to stay true. I want to stay authentic. And so she would go through this process of inquiry, and and her primary criterion that she finally rested in, is, I know this is a gift from God if it leaves me with an expanded heart, if it fills me with more love and more of a desire to be of service to others. That's it. And it did. And she rested in that. But she had a lot of uh, illnesses in her life. She suffered a lot. She, She began to have... Life-threatening illnesses as a teenager. When she joined the convent, you know, she was one of these people that was sent to the convent, get ye to a nunnery because she was fooling around with some boy in the garden. It might have even been a girl. We don't know for sure, but some some romantic tryst unchaperoned in the garden. Her mother died in childbirth when when her mother was 33 and Teresa was 12, and uh, she was giving birth to her ninth child. And Teresa was left motherless with a bunch of much older brothers and a father who had adored her and didn't want to boss her around, and so she just ran wild. And you know how teenagers are. Whatever teenagers do now, I'm sure she did it too. And uh, she got herself into some trouble because her family was nobility. The way they survived uh, the Inquisition was that her grandfather converted to Christianity and purchased a title of nobility, a noble title of Hidalgo, and kept the family safe. They they basically bought their way to freedom and then were accused of secretly pra- practicing their ancestral religion of Judaism and were publicly humiliated. And it was a very traumatic experience for Teresa's father, who was a young teenager when that happened, and so he was determined that his children would not experience being shamed as Jews. And so Teresa never, ever speaks about her Jewish heritage, but we can imagine and we can feel that it was part of who she was. John of the Cross was not from a noble family. He was from a very, very poor family. So poor, in fact, that he suffered from malnutrition as a child and never grew above five feet, which seems plenty tall to me. But I guess for a guy, it wasn't tall enough. And he had this enormous head and these giant black, deep black eyes. And John of the Cross, when he was very young, in order to support his family, worked in a hospital, which was essentially a hospice for people who were dying of syphilis in a very poor part of, of the city of Toledo. And he caught the attention of the hospital administrator who began to notice that this young man, 16 years old, was tending the dying with incredible chesed, loving kindness and care. And he began to speak with this young man who was well beyond his years in wisdom and compassion and realized that there was something very gifted about him. And he, the hospital administrator paid to send Juan, young Juan de la Cruz to the University of Salamanca to study. And the University of Salamanca at the time was a hub in Europe for learning. And there was a lot of Islamic uh, studies going on there, and I am sure you guys... That Juan de la Cruz was exposed to Mavlana Jalaluddin Rumi, because their poetry is so similar the images they use are often identical, you know the the secret rendezvous of lover and beloved in the garden, images of fire and wine, the wine of intoxication, all of the the gar the garden all of these images are are so similar so. In many way, in many ways, when I recognized at age twenty, when I was studying Spanish literature in Spain, and I read Juan de la Cruz in español, and recognized him as the Rumi of Spain, that was not a coinkydink. That was they they were brothers, even though they were separated by four centuries. Yeah, four centuries. So Juan, um, so Teresa began this reform movement. Among the Carmelite order and the Carmelites had started in 4th century Palestine as being a contemplative monastic order and had completely by the 16th century in Spain strayed from that and and had lost themselves in the in the materialism of the church as so many monastic orders had by that time and she was determined to wrestle back the contemplative tradition and return so she began this reform movement and in her 50s she heard about this young priest juan de la cruz who was so she was 56 and he was 23 when they met she she basically summoned him when she heard about him and he she was she had that um that city she was very charismatic and very powerful and very loving and fierce And he was very soft and quiet, but also had that inner fire. I sometimes see them, in fact, as mirrors of each other because she was outwardly very dramatic, like a drama queen, I would go so far as to say. And he was outwardly very austere. But inside, he burned with the fire of longing for God. And she spent her life cultivating what she called the prayer of quiet. So they mirrored each other beautifully. So he came to her, and she said, "Padre, I hear that you share my views on the need to reform the Carmelite order. I, I understand that you've recently been ordained and you're already giving it up. Which he was. He was just going to go off into the hills to live as a holy hermit. He had had it. You know, two years." as a friar was enough for him. He did not want to participate in the in the bureaucracy. So she said, I think we're on the same page and I would really love for you to help me with my reform. And his response was something like, Okay, but as long as it doesn't take as long as it doesn't take too long. He was very impatient. And when he said yes to her, He said yes with all his heart, and they became sole companions in this work. And they created what's called the Discalced Carmelite Order, which is the barefoot Carmelites, in recognition of that return to voluntary simplicity, like Francis of Assisi and the poor little brothers. So as a result of Juan de la Cruz's efforts in the reform movement of his of his guru Teresa Vavila, and she definitely was his his teacher although i think it was reciprocal he was imprisoned he was uh, kidnapped one night in the middle of the night from his monastery and and thrown into a tiny little prison cell in a monastery on a hill in southern spain and locked into this tiny space that wasn't even big enough for him to lie down in that had formerly been formerly been a latrine. so it was this stinky fetid little cell with a very with very high walls and a little tiny window at the top through which he could kind of track the daylight um, rising and falling and a few stars moving across. That space he was an amateur astronomer who was as likely to take his monks up into the hills for stargazing as to ask people to pray with him in uh, in the church in the chapel, so nine months, nine months, this guy suffered imprisonment, and guess how he endured, how he survived poetry. He would write poems in his head and then learn them by heart. I like how Kim Rosen talks about learning a poem by heart rather than memorizing it. So he'd learn the poems by heart and recite them. So he's he's not the first or the last person for whom poetry has been truly life-saving. And apparently caught the attention of a sympathetic guard who eventually actually passed him under the the door, or with a meal, we don't know parchment and quill or whatever they used in the 16th century to write stuff. And he was able to write down some of his poems and stuff them inside his one robe. He was arrested in a single robe, which rotted off him in the summer, and and which he froze in the in the winter. It was and once a day, the monks would take him out, only to flog him while they were having their meal. In fact, he eventually died at the age of forty nine from from a recurring infection uh from one of those those wounds he, he sustained in prison. So one day he escaped, miraculously escaped, probably the same guard who slipped him the the um iPad with which he wrote down his poems probably gave him some pieces of material and he made a a rope, and he was able somehow to get it up and over that window and let himself down the long wall of the monastery, crossed the courtyard in the dark, climbed over the wall. And uh, how many dog lovers are in this room? Any? Yeah. And there was a black dog in the black night that he uh, followed, and it led him to one of Teresa's reformed, discalced convents where the nuns took him in and nursed him back to health. And it was out of that experience that he actually wrote the great poem, Dark Night of the Soul, Noche Oscura del Alma, that I read to you. Oh, how many of you were here yesterday? How many of you were not here yesterday? Okay. I might read a little bit of that poem again. Can't hear it too many times like a good rock and roll song. And that poem, he says, was was an outflowing of love for God that just poured out of him, much like his brother Rumi and his sister Mirabai and all the other great mystic poets who didn't sit down to necessarily compose great works of literature, but these ecstatic love poems flowed out of them as a natural response to seeing the face of the beloved. Okay, so I'm just going to read a little bit of Noche Oscura del Alma and then I'll read a couple of poems by um, a couple of other mystics and then open it up. On a dark night inflamed by love longing oh exquisite wrists Undetected, I slipped away, my house at last grown still. Secure in the darkness, I climbed the secret ladder in disguise. Oh, exquisite risk. Concealed by the darkness, my house at last grown still. That sweet night, a secret. Nobody saw me. I did not see a thing, no other light, no other guide than the one burning in my heart. This light led the way more clearly than the risen sun to where he was waiting for me, the one I knew so intimately, in a place no one could find us. O night that guided me, O night sweeter than sunrise, O night that joined lover with beloved, lover transformed in beloved. I said I was just going to read a couple of stanzas, but I God, I just realized you guys can help me with something I've been grappling with for years. I think you have to have some connection with the Eastern traditions to see this. So during the Q&R, questions and responses, because I have no answers, just want to Establish that right off the bat. Um, maybe you'll have some insights. Okay, so he goes on. So he's talking about escaping in the middle of the night for a secret rendezvous with the beloved in the garden, right? And this that when the house was grown still, he explains very clearly that what he's speaking about... Oh, by the way, he wrote a 200-page prose commentary to this eight stanza poem, but only because his the, the nuns begged him to because he wrote this poem or composed this poem, shared it with them, and they were like, wow, (laughs) that's really a nice poem, but you don't mention God, you don't even mention Christ, and it sounds a little erotic. (laughs) Not unlike another great scripture from the Bible, which was Juan de la Cruz's favorite scripture, the Song of Songs, which, by the way, he asked to be read to him on his deathbed. They were starting to administered the last rites, and he said, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. Just read to me from the Song of Songs so you can see where his heart was. So anyway, um, what was I saying? So, yeah, so the thing I've grappled with is that, so he goes on, thank you, Gabriela. So he goes on from talking about slipping away from the house of, uh, that has grown still, which is the house of the senses and the intellect. So the sen- the sensory attachments have fallen away. This is a dark night of the soul. Our sensory attachments have fallen away. Our attachment to the way the spiritual life is supposed to feel, that spiritual high that we had been conditioned to rely upon, to motivate us on our journey, is not working anymore in a dark night of the soul. Everything becomes very dry and empty. Not only that, but if we if we progress to what John calls the state of the adept, all of our concepts become completely dismantled, as Roshi was talking about this morning, and fall away also, so that not only can we no longer feel or sense the presence of God, but we can no longer conceive of any spiritual or religious notions. None of it makes sense. This, according to Juan de la Cruz, is Excellent news because that's when we can slip away for the secret rendezvous with the beloved because the house has grown still and dark. So, okay, good. The night guides him. The dark night of the soul is actually radiant light, only our eyes have not become accustomed to that light like Plato's prisoners in the cave. And the one guy gets free and goes up to the world, the real world, and is at first is blinded by the light. So that's one of the reasons he explains we experience a dark night of the soul is what we're experiencing is the radiance of God. Okay, sorry, I'm on a total tangent, but I also made a connection with with teachings of ego, soul, and the one, with the Christian mystical teachings of the via negativa, the way of negation, which consists of three parts. That I think mirror Ramdas is teaching beautifully. The three parts of the Via Negativa are the Via Purgativa, the way of purification; the Via Illuminativa, the way of illumination; and the Via Unitiva, the way of union. Way, yoga, way, path to union. And in the path of purgation or purification, we are stripped of everything that stands between us and the beloved. And often what stands between us and God are all our ideas about God, right? Have you noticed that? In the way of illumination, into that scoured vessel, light pours. And that light is blinding at first. And it's also hot and it melts all the barriers. And that melting leads to union. So we move from the ego experience, which often is what Roshi spoke about as a threshold experience, often a shattering experience, into an experience of being broken open and filled with light, into those blessed moments of meeting the one in which all sense of separation dissolves. Okay, so that's where we are in the poem so far. Then comes this part. Upon my blossoming breast, which I cultivated just for him, he drifted into sleep. And while I caressed him, a cedar breeze touched the air. Wind blew down from the tower, parting the locks of his hair. With his gentle hand, he wounded my neck and all my senses were suspended. I lost myself, forgot myself. I lay my face against the beloved's face. Everything fell away, and I left myself behind, abandoning my cares among the lilies, forgotten. So what's up with this with his gentle hand he wounded my neck and all my senses were suspended among other images here that he never explains so he writes this 200-page commentary which i translated and he only gets through the first few stanzas it's not like he he died in the middle or anything he just i guess he got interested in something else actually he gets very very rapturous at the end of this text it's just pure poetry And I think he just spins off and becomes silent. Okay, I'm gonna stop talking in just a minute. But speaking of silence, I make my living speaking about silence. Here's a poem by Pablo Neruda. My literary agent just gave this to me in New York last week. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines, We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing... Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. And I'll end with a poem by my namesake, Mirabai. Oh, my friends, what can you tell me of love whose pathways are filled with strangeness? When you offer the Great One your love, at the first step, your body is crushed. Next, be ready to offer your head as his seat. Be ready to orbit his lamp like a moth giving in to the light, to live in the deer as she runs toward the hunter's call, in the partridge that swallows hot coals for love of the moon in the fish that, kept from the sea, happily dies. Like a bee trapped for life in the closing of the sweet flower, Mira has offered herself to her lord. She says, the single lotus will swallow you whole. So as I said yesterday that some of this journey seems to be about annihilation, about being burned to death, about becoming nothing. And this is this is a cause for celebration according to the mystics. This is this is great news. Doesn't always feel so so great. But um the longing is the response to the longing. Today is Shabbat in the Jewish tradition. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. And uh, one of the prayers on Friday night is the, is the Kiddush prayer when we bless the cup of wine. And I was taught that the cup, the Kiddush cup, the empty cup represents the heart that is longing for the divine and the wine pouring into the cup. And you fill the The wine to the brim on Shabbat is the immediate answering response of God's love into the empty cup of the longing heart. The moment we reach out, there is the response. In fact, they're almost indistinguishable. Even though I said I was done, I'm going to read you one more poem. Love Dogs by Rumi. Some of you know that poem? Yeah. Yeah. One night a man grew, no, one night a man was crying, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic said, So, I have heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer for that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep where he dreamed he saw Kidder, the guide of souls in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? Because I've never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. Okay, love dogs, talk to me.
3: Happy birthday.
2: Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. A great place to celebrate a birthday. Thank you.
3: So I think we all want to be one of those loved dogs. And? <laughs> um, so when we're reading about different mystics or of any tradition, Living or deceased, especially I mean I guess the ones who are long deceased, how do we know that we're not just reading a hagiography? How do we know we're we're connecting with truth?
2: Right. If it expands our hearts, like Teresa Vavila says, with more love, I think we can rely on that it's an authentic direct experience what um what does mysticism mean that the technical definition of the term is direct connection with the divine right so it's the most authentic radically authentic path i know of is the path of the mystic that relies it's only on direct experience which takes many forms and sometimes is disguised as something unholy <laughs> um but as far as the The um inclination to romanticize the long dead saints or even the recently dead saints um uh, i mean I romanticized my daughter as a holy being you know within an hour of her death she was she became that for me uh that that's the impulse that human beings have is is to um, to glorify the dead and the more. Wisdom they they shared in their lifetime, the more tempting it is to do that, and I think that 's okay because we don 't actually often know the whole story in the case of Teresa Vavila, we know her story because she wrote it down, um, the life of Teresa Vavila, which I have also translated is her autobiography, but it's not like she sat down to write her memoirs at age 40, which is when she did it, because she thought she had such an interesting life and that everybody would want to know all about it. It was because she was forced by the Inquisition to document all of her experiences, and that became what we know of as the life of Teresa of um, which was totally written against her will, but she is brutally honest about herself and all her neuroses and shortcomings I mean so much so that I had to like cut some of them because the self deprecation was out of control and I knew none of my American um, um, people would read her and be able to stomach all the self deprecating comments she was making but most of the great mystics did not write about themselves and so we do we do um, hold them up on on pedestals and and that The danger of that is that we put the wisdom outside of ourselves, right? That we foist it upon those awakened ones and don't recognize the wisdom in ourselves. Similarly, we don't recognize their brokenness. And to me, what's so interesting about the mystics like St. Francis of Assisi is that not just that he walked around with his arms extended and the birds landed on on his hands and he you know, calmed wild wolves but that francis of assisi from what we know suffered deeply in his own lifetime the small band of poor brothers and sisters that he created to live and serve live with and serve the poor had mushroomed into this bureaucracy, this religious institution that completely freaked him out. And not only that, they, they basically said, you you know, your, your rule that you have written of voluntary simplicity and, and poverty uh, is actually not workable. And so we'll just take that from you and turn it into what we think we should do with it. So he became angry and ill and disenchanted, Teresa of Avila, Hildegard of Bingen. These are people who wanted to be liked. And when they had interpersonal and political strife in their lives, it broke their hearts. And when I read this about them, i and I'm not disappointed that they weren't holy enough. I am so relieved that they participated in the human condition just like me. So I probably answered that in contradictory ways, but they're all true. Thank you. And there's Punya back there, Mike, and someone up here.
4: Hi, Mirabai. Thank Hi. you.
2: Hi. Welcome.
4: Um, I feel like I experienced the dark night of the soul last year in my life. Maybe you have more than one. I'm not sure. I hope not. Um, (laughs) I, I was wondering if you could speak about faith. Because although the path of the mystic is direct experience, which I feel qualified after my experience to say I felt the experience. A lot of times before the experience happens or while it's happening, um, there's an element of faith that it, that you will have an experience. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk about faith more. Sometimes we come to our meditation practice wanting a deeper experience, but it doesn't always happen. And so we have to yeah. cultivate faith to stick with it, I, I, I suspect. Um, no. No.
2: But you ready? Yes. Okay. Thank you for your question and blessings on your dark night. Um, so my friend Sharon Salzberg, a friend of many of yours, speaks about the different kinds of faith, and she speaks about bright faith, and then this deeper kind of faith that actually um, is predicated on resting in radical unknowingness which is what John of the Cross is speaking about. In fact, by definition, in a dark night of the soul, we don't have a shred of anything resembling hope, which sometimes is confused with faith, that the night will ever lift. And we're not allowed to. The night has to be impenetrable at a certain point. We have to abide according to the Dark Night of the Soul teaching of of St. John of the Cross anyway, for a period in absolute not-knowingness for the transformation to occur. If we have any shred of everything's going to be okay, then the dismantling is not complete. And that's why we can't actually know we're in a dark night of the soul when we're in one. In fact, you could have a whole line of people in front of you, one by one, telling you, it's okay, honey, you're just having a dark night of the soul experience. This will pass. And you will not believe them. You're not allowed to believe them. It has to be complete, impenetrable darkness. And then... It is only afterwards that we can kind of look back and see what was happening, which was that we were being stripped, shattered, and blessed. Does that? Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Hi.
4: Um, I don't want to be too specific in my question because I want you to take it to whatever place you feel you have the most to say, but I'm interested to hear anything you have to say about the relationship between um, imagination and faith or imagination and spirituality or imagination and healing or just, you know, what role that has or what those words together, you know, bring up for you.
5: Hmm.
2: I was so relieved when Ramna spoke about the experience of the soul and devotion to Maharaji and all of these kind of subjective bhakti experiences as possibly being imagination. That really soothed my um, inner Jewish skeptic. Because I can do that. I can imagine that I am a separate self in love with a great vast beloved who loves me unconditionally, who sometimes looks like a lover and sometimes looks like the mother and sometimes looks like my self. But that part of the um, bounty that we're given as incarnated beings is that we have these rich, vibrant imaginations that can... That can um establish relationship and relationship with the divine, so for me, faith and healing, what was the other the third one yeah is is intimately entwined with my ability to use this blessing of imagination, and so that's why when we when we spoke earlier, when Ramdas spoke about or maybe it was Krishna Dass, it was Krishna Dass, about non-duality bhakti same same different doesn't matter we seem to to drift in and out of this dance of um separateness and union and one of the the gifts of separateness is the ability to imagine a beloved with whom we are in relationship a devotional relationship and then we and then we melt back into into the unity from which we arise and to which we return. And it doesn't have to be one state or the other, but the incarnational version uh, is, is wildly creative. And I love that. Thank you.
6: Hello.
1: Cool.
7: Hi. Hi, I got Hi. The end. Um, uh So, I'm very familiar with that longing. Um, I've called it to myself in the past uh, the uh, the ache, um, and it's something that I've experienced a lot in um, in in interaction with theater, whether it's seeing theater or being in theater. And a lot of like reading certain poems, Mary Oliver gives me that sometimes. Um, I was feeling that just now, hearing those stories you were talking about, uh, Teresa and John, um, that ache, um, which is similar to the, what the koan makes me feel. Um, that sense of like, like any notion of an answer is a separate thing that is named an answer. So it doesn't really work but there's that kind of like liminal place of like that really really uncomfortable place of like ah, ah like i know it is something but i know that calling it something names it and then it's gone and over and over again and i've found here in uh, it's it's a um very new experience realizing just how rapid fire this is always happening in me constantly every moment this kind of like is that it no that's not it is that it no is that it it? it?" like always like trying to freaking catch it catch it catch it catch it and it's like smoke you know you try to catch smoke and you there's nothing and like so imagination i was also very grateful that um RD brought up imagination because um, uh, I'm a storyteller and that's my path. I can tell. And um, <laughs> um, and um, I find it so um, th- like the only ways I can approach this kind of stuff is that like in those places when you enter into a story, when you um, when you experience it as a space when you experience a story as something that isn't just like words you're hearing or isn't like electrical impulses in your brain. It's something that is a substance that is all around you and you're experiencing it in a visceral way. Um, So what uh,
2: what is your question?
7: I'm getting there. I promise. (laughs) Um, uh, The... the, um, Storytelling, the imagination. Thank you, Melvi. Um, the um, they're real. They're alive. Yeah. Teresa's alive. John is alive. Yeah. Um, and he is alive. And he's a story. And uh, the the spleen story is a story that's happening right now. You know, it didn't happen back then. It's happening yeah. over and over again. And every time I hear that story, it's completely brand new. Mm. Um, that is a new. It's the same. It's it's Hanuman jumping over the the river, but it ha- it supposedly happened recently. You know, if you know, within the thing of time. Um. <sighs> how do you? I also experience myself not being able to be tied down to a particular like. Aha! This is my way. Like, how do you carry in you all of those? Are they? <sighs> I have like sixteen different questions. I just realized um, the that that um, constant grabbing at it, trying to get the um, trying to get the little bit of juice, trying to get the the pollen, whatever it is, trying to like ah uh, let me please put it in me, P- please please let me have that, please let me be that.
5: Okay,
6: good.
7: How do you hold that?
2: You know, you know. The
7: question isn't. I can't ask the question.
2: Okay, you know? I I know. I get the dilemma. I totally get it. And you know, the the whole mystical path is is grounded in paradox. The the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. That doesn't mean we just do nothing. It means that that we um, show up for this. Experience with our full heart and energy, and and as our friend Stephen Levine says, hold on tightly and let go lightly. I I don't um, I don't grasp for it. What I do is I kind of in the in the presence of the teachings, I go what I call soft focus. I think this is an Aikido term, and I let it come in as a field, and I don't try to grasp the epiphanies. And then the, the wave of the teachings pass passes and whatever arises is what I carry with me. And it is inevitably a very rich something that integrates with who I am without my trying to um, hold on to it. I mean those I didn't look at my notes to tell you those stories of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and Hildegard of Bingen and Francis of Assisi it's just their their stories are so integrated with my being that certain things just stay with me It's almost always uncomfortable. Yeah. A little bit. Thank you. We can talk more later,
5: Gabriel. Okay. Hi, um, I'm Vijay. Um, Hi, I have Vijay. this um, question. I've been mean, going through this for the last three days. There is a uh, thing And I, I really wanted to have this question to all the wonderful teachers that we have here. I see Babaji is here. So I also want to have that question for uh, Ramdas as well. Um, I have this wonderful learning that what Krishna said is like this, that Baba has indicated. How do I tell that to my four-year-old?
2: The, sub, the teaching of subek, The, the, the teaching one, of the one God the one to, to my is.
5: four-year-old. Uh, mm-hmm. That's my first question. I also have another question that is burning in. in some like This whole thing started off in the 60s with, with a lot of young people coming together and thinking about a whole social cultural change. And somehow that it also included the uh, psychedelics and other things along with that. But the beautiful thing about that moment, which I see, is like the, the love that comes out, that pours onto the streets of, of the world, and to see that everybody how we connect to every other human. And if I look at it today's world, it's it's you see that people go and bomb countries. I don't want to be. I'm sorry if I hurt anybody here, but. We see that countries are bombed, lives are lost, humans are erased, religion could be a part of it, there are several, economics to be part of it, there are so many other reasons why it happened, but race could be a reason as well. How do we go and take this courage for love, get it to the streets or get it to the soul of people? how do you pass on that so that we see whatever we're seeing it, how do you reduce it
2: at least? Thanks, Vichai. I'm with you. I mean, this is the, the question that I grapple with every day. I I have taught high school and college for my whole adult life, and, and you're talking about even younger children, that how do we um, teach the message of love the earlier the better so that that The fighters lay down their arms and take each other into their arms. Um, I don't know but what I will say is that uh, in my work with young activists I am filled with hope because I am seeing more and more people who are absolutely dedicated to this issue that you know maybe in the 60s during the the anti-war movement, it, it seemed like there was a lot more going on than there is now. But I assure you, and you know too, there is a lot going on now. And the the difference is that the activism is taking on this contemplative dimension of trying to ground our efforts to be peacemakers with the cultivation of, of some kind of peace within. And so teaching children meditation practice is not only vital for, for peacemaking, but is um, possibly the, the only way that we're going to have a tangible hope of um, counteracting the rising tide of violence and division so, teaching meditation with young children, I think is really vital, you know, and also, I have to say that we might not make it. I mean, I am looking around i'm am, I am working with all my might, along with all of you, to um, to bring peace t- to this earth and to save this fragile planet by awake, educating people and and sounding the wake up call. you know the world is burning. I do that with everything I write and teach if I can. But I, kind of like my answer to Gabriel about about holding on to the teachings, I'm not holding on to the outcome. And I'm aware that with the climate crisis, for instance, we actually might may have gone too far. And we may collapse. And then, as my friend Andrew Harvey says, all of us who have been cultivating the courage to love, well, he doesn't say that, but are will be midwives in the rebirth that will arise from the the death that that may be coming we're still we're going to be needed no matter what happens with our courageous loving hearts
3: working? Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, Many of the stories that I've heard of having a spiritual experience um, seem to emerge from um, external very harsh conditions, right? Whether it's St. John in a tiny cell or um, to a certain extent Ram Dass after his stroke and a lot of um external harsh conditions are there any examples or stories um that you know of that is kind of a regular human being with their own internal struggles that doesn't necessarily have to be something dramatically external that talk about spiritual experiences
2: nope i'm sorry there some i mean i was just like going through the list in my mind of and I couldn't think of any but um absolutely yes i believe that we can and often do have awakening experiences in that come from just peaceful joyful participation in in life and many of but i i have never met anyone who is unscathed by the human condition. So on one level or another, suffering happens. I think the Buddha talked about that in the First Noble Truth. It It is the experience of incarnation. And so it doesn't have to be dramatic in order to be transformational. But I don't think any of us escape suffering. Many of us escape waking up from our suffering. I mean in, in in as a result of our suffering many people just suffer and go right back to sleep so it's not like suffering is uh is sufficient for awakening but it does seem to be necessary I I don't know I'm biased because I have had so much loss in my life and I have so much joy now I mean I the the smallest things send me into fits of rapture my editor over there said when she was editing my book, God of Love, Twinette, um which tends to be a little rapturous, she said, I was reading this and I and it reminded me of that, what was that film with them? What was that film? You, I, I'll have what she's having. Oh, what is her name? When Harry met Sally and she's faking the orgasm in the restaurant and the woman's watching her. And then comes time for her to order, and she looks over and she says, "I'll have what she's having." So, but I, this rapturous inclination that I have—I mean, yes, I kind of was was always somewhat inclined that way. But I have had deaths and losses my whole life, starting from a very young child when my older brother died of of a brain tumor, and then my first love was shot and killed. I mean, just lots of dramatic losses of other kinds too—not just deaths—and yet um, this this joy. Joy, this childlike wonderment that pervades my life. Not all the time, huh, honey? Sometimes I'm i am a bitch. But sometimes <laughs> I have this, this just absolute um, awe at the beauty of this world. And I think that comes from my brokenness. But anyway, I'm no mystic, but I do get that that the shattering seems to be part of the, uh, of the arrangement. And it is ordinary. So that's the, my last part um, of the answer, response to your question is, you, know, you said, are there any just sort of ordinary people that experience this without these great um, stories of dramatic suffering? And yes, we're all ordinary people experiencing those awakenings all the time. Yeah. Thank
3: you. Uh, thank you, Mirabai, for um, your talk yesterday and today. You're welcome. Um, I wish I had had you as a professor in college. <laughs> <laughs> Just You get that information in there and tell tell your stories and teach us so beautifully. There aren't enough years between us for that to have been a possibility, but. Mm. Um, so I guess I'll, I'm gonna get very specific and um, just about, I guess, the, my story personally um, because it's a burning question that I have that's it's a recurring quandary, which is a, I, I lost my husband to a brain tumor I think 12 12 years ago, so maybe a little bit around the time when you said your daughter had had died. Mm. And so there was that kind of exquisite thing of the floor dropping out when the shit hit the fan, the the tumor hemorrhaged, and it was the kind of high drama emergency room, like a TV show. Mm. But it did have that sort of, I wasn't even sad, because it's just, it kind of like, the screen blipped out. And then immediately in the wake of that, um, through this sort of strange and miraculous recovery of sorts, he lived for another two years but was just horribly disabled. But I, I was able to care from rich in-laws, you know, this kind of thing. So it immediately went from that, the sort of floor dropping out, to just the business of taking care of a very sick person for a couple years, and then he passed away, and life has gone on. You know, I got remarried and divorced in another relationship, and I met my teacher, and it, it continues to go on. I'm getting to my question. I feel like my grief has turned into, it's like my nundro I'm avoiding doing, like, just being here in these days and I'm just by myself a lot and just this sort of crying at the drop of a hat and it's like, did I, um, my fear is I skipped a step or something. Like everything kind of, it just went into dealing and by the time he died there was so much suffering just in the dealing, so much suffering that he had experienced, it wasn't just this, he was here and then he was gone. Um, and so I guess my question to you from someone who has experienced a loss that I imagine when I you know go out to dinner with my father-in-law I get that it's even more tremendous than what I experienced that Nikki is gone this sounds so childish but is this normal
2: Mm. thank you so there is no right way to grieve. You know that, right? And there's no timetable, and and I often work with people who are just beginning to grieve a loss that happened 20 years ago. It's another one of those spiral uh, arrangements that we spoke about yesterday that, you know, when, when Kubler-Ross talked about the the phases of grief, which she later wished she hadn't called that because there there are experiences and flavors and faces of grief that we come back to again and again and it's a spiraling each time we integrate a little bit more of of our loss into an expanse an expanded beingness. And um and so I think you're right on track. You know, twelve years later you're You're here at this beautiful retreat. And everything's making you cry. And you're feeling your feelings in a new way, in a deeper way. And you're integrating more. And it sounds like you're right on track to me.
6: Yeah, Thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, I am certain, and I've always been certain, that I was born to serve. It's just intrinsic to my human design. And I keep visualizing this sort of perambulation, like around Bodhnath Stupa, and the narrative that keeps repeating the way we have these circuitous conversations in our head and repeat the same narrative. You've been talking about that a bit. Mm-hmm. And... What I want to know from you is, you know, we deal with this these elements of you know filial obligation, fiduciary responsibility, and desire on the other side. And it's like my favorite Buddhist mudra is the one where Maya Devi is trying to entice the Buddha and one hand touching the earth, like that resistance. And when you feel like you have a higher calling but you have this much more pervasive movement towards, I'm an atheist. I mean, what does that really mean? This will sound critical and harsh, but I feel sorry for them when they say that. And it's everywhere, it's like a sense of pride that people say, I feel, uh, well, there's nothing really out there. Well, I, this is just funny, and I just want to add some humor to it. When I arrived in Mill Valley, the first person to ring my bell was a Chabad rabbi. And he said, it's like they have like radar. He said, my wife made you a challah. Do you know people come to Marin to escape their Judaism? And I sort of laughed. And then I realized it was really quite true, and that sorry to say, including my soon-to-be ex, didn't really believe in God. And this oneness you talk about and the need to serve in a bigger way, um, when you don't have a lot on your side to support you in doing that, other than you know writing a check for charity, it gets kind of lonely. So any thoughts about that? I'm
2: trying to sort out your question to something I can, some specific thing I can address. I mean, you had a lot of interesting things to say, but I'm not quite sure what it is you'd like me to comment on. The, the connection between faith, um, faith and atheism?
6: The ability to be steadfast in your desire to serve okay. the one. hmm well one of
2: the the issues that i think comes up in in talking about faith versus atheism and by the way i am an atheist every other day you know i just yeah just have to come clean there and um and the distinction between serving others and and um having desires i think all of these distinctions are dualities obviously, and create a dualistic experience. So I, for one, am interested in reclaiming the beauty and holiness of desire and of longing. So that, you know, when the Buddha touched the earth in that mudra, it wasn't to fend off the wicked temptations. It was saying, the earth will bear me witness, right? So our connectedness to the earth, to these bodies, to the human experience, is I don't see it as a curse. I see it as a blessing that we get to be separate in order to to adore and to praise and to feel, uh, who was it who said, I don't want to be sugar, I want to taste sugar. I mean, union is great, but longing is great too. And they're the same, I think I pointed out. And so being of service and experiencing the deliciousness of desire is is part of the package of what drives us um, to stay on this wheel of samsara until all beings are free, so I don't know I mean thank you for your for your commitment to being of service, and I hope that that um, you get to celebrate the the parts that aren't that don't necessarily look like what you thought service was supposed to look like. The, you know, Jewish wisdom teachings tell us that each of us is uniquely designed to do our our task of raising up this broken world and repairing it, tikkun olam, the repair of the world. That that every act of chesed of loving kindness, every act of that. Sadaka, generosity, every kind thought um, of metta is restoring the busted cup of the world to wholeness. And that each one of us has our own way of bringing those shards of light back together. That's what we're made for. Tikkun olam. Are we out of time? Okay, thank you.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.